folks, welcome back to Excuse Me History. This is your host, Joe, and we are on episode 14 of the Gettysburg Campaign, getting getting close to the end. I keep saying that, I think, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so the last handful of episodes, we've been stuck in the, the quagmire of July 2nd, 1863, and finally finished up the fighting up on Culp's and Cemetery Hills. So yeah, this episode we're basically just going to talk about the state of both armies, what's going on in the head of the, the leadership of the two armies, and just kind of the general state of the situation, and then the, the, the planning stages for July 3rd. But of course, you know, like the Facebook page, which I'll link to in the description of this episode, Give us a five-star rating on any app that you use where that is possible, and subscribe to the podcast. If you're just listening to these episodes, just checking in randomly on Apple Podcasts or whatever, that's weird. Go ahead and subscribe to it so you know when there's a new episode. Probably won't be very often, but... (laughs) All right, folks, let's start the show. We spent the last seven episodes in Gettysburg as the two great armies of the Eastern Theater slugged it out on July 1st and 2nd, 1863. In the last episode, I briefly mentioned how General Jeb Stuart finally reached Gettysburg during the middle of the fight on the second day. But the last time we talked about Stuart in detail was back in part six of this series, when his three brigades of cavalry crossed the Potomac just after midnight on June 28th. It was then that he learned that the Army of the Potomac was much farther north than he had anticipated. Because their ride from the Loudoun Valley to the Potomac River had been rather arduous, Stuart gave his troopers some rest in the early morning hours of the 28th. Private John Edward Armstrong was a 16-year-old trooper in Company H, the 4th Virginia Cavalry, also known as the Black Horse Cavalry. Armstrong wrote about his wartime experiences in the 1930s, and the first thing he discussed after the river crossing was that they captured some supplies at one of the locks on the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal. Quote, I remember filling my haversack with salt herring, unquote. Both Union and Confederate accounts of the war almost invariably mention food, but it's something that, I don't know, it, it really sticks out when you read Confederate accounts of the war. It makes sense when you consider that at most times the various Confederate armies were made up of half-starved soldiers. So far in this podcast, I really haven't talked much about my own kind of personal connections to the Civil War. I did have many a relative who was in the war. All of them were on the southern side, uh, <laughs> which I guess is it's something that you probably people don't really talk a lot about today. It's kind of becoming a, a faux pas, I guess, as it were. But I did have multiple Confederate ancestors. In fact, I had at least one that was at Gettysburg that I'm aware of. Uh, he was in the 6th North Carolina Infantry, and he was wounded on the first day of the battle. When I was a kid, my grandma told me about her grandfather's experience during the Civil War. Uh, He was was my great-great-grandfather. His name was Joseph Paul. The only things that she could remember him telling her was that he surrendered with Johnston's army at Bennett Place, and on his journey home, all he could find to eat was onions, which he grew to despise and never ate again upon his arrival back in Beaufort County. Like the rest of the Army of Northern Virginia, the cavalrymen were struck by the beauty of the Maryland countryside and the bountiful crops and livestock in comparison to the barren state of the Virginia Piedmont in 1863. Captain William Blackford, one of Stuart's staff officers, wrote in a letter, quote, Oh, what a change from the hoof-trodden, war-wasted lands of old Virginia to a country fresh and plentiful, unquote. 
Stewart must have realized that they were far behind schedule. He wrote in his campaign report, quote, I realized the importance of joining our army in Pennsylvania and resumed the march northward early on the 28th, unquote. On the 28th, the Army of Northern Virginia was spread out all over Pennsylvania, with little knowledge of the whereabouts of the Army of the Potomac. The rebel cavalry commander needed to reconnect with Dick Yule, whose corps was strung out between Carlisle, Harrisburg, and Wrightsville. From the Potomac River, the Confederate troopers rode toward Rockville, Maryland. If you've ever driven around Washington, D.C., you've undoubtedly heard of Rockville, but in my mind, it's the kind of place that only exists on roadside signs. In reality, Rockville is a suburb of the capital city, about 15 miles to the northwest. As they neared the outskirts of town, the cavalrymen of General Wade Hampton's brigade encountered federal cavalry that was part of the Washington defenses. After chasing off the small detachment, the students of a local all-girls academy came out to admire the Confederate horse soldiers. No proper trooper would turn down an opportunity to flirt with a girl when he could be doing something more important. But after a brief delay, they encountered a significant prize. Well over 100 wagons carrying supplies bound for the Army of the Potomac were coming up the road from Washington. When the Teamsters spotted the troopers of the 2nd South Carolina Cavalry, they panicked, and a chaotic mess ensued as they tried to turn their mule teams around and make a mad dash back for the capital. A couple of dozen wagons managed to evade capture, but approximately 125 either overturned or were overtaken by Stuart's force. Some of the troopers continued to pursue the panic supply wagons until they reached a high ridge that overlooked Washington. They were about eight miles from the city, and Captain Blackford could see the unfinished dome of the Capitol building, still under construction at that time. Citizens of D.C. began to panic when word reached the city of the close proximity of the rebel raiders. Stuart briefly contemplated making an attack on the city. At that time, there was only a tiny force left guarding the capital since several brigades had been loaned out to the Army of the Potomac, and the district's cavalry force was mostly elsewhere in Maryland or Pennsylvania. Stuart's three brigades possibly could have ridden into Washington and caused quite a ruckus had they chosen to do so. Just exactly what they could accomplish is debatable, but from a PR standpoint, it would have been a huge embarrassment for the Lincoln administration. Ultimately, Stuart chose not to pursue this route, simply because he was already too far behind schedule. It was already early afternoon, and he figured by the time they reached the city, it'd be dark. An attack would have to wait until the following day, which was more time than they could afford. Private John Armstrong recalled, quote, We coal-oiled the wagons and burned what we could not carry with us. Unquote. Even after burning off the broken wagons and excess supplies, Stewart's column was becoming increasingly burdensome. He now had around 125 wagons, which would not only slow the speed of their march north, they'd also have to be guarded from recapture. Additionally, over the course of the past few days, his division had captured some 400 federal soldiers. Both of these impediments would mean that not much progress was made on June 28th. To lighten their load, Stewart had the Union POWs paroled that night and the next morning. This process was slow. Paroling soldiers meant that they'd be released from capture, but couldn't rejoin their units until they'd been officially exchanged for Confederate prisoners. If they were caught again before they'd been exchanged, they risked execution. Early on the 29th, they reached the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, perhaps the most important rail line in that part of the country, if not the entire East Coast. The troopers spent quite a bit of time tearing up the railroad tracks, telegraph wires, and destroying rail cars and depot buildings. When Stewart felt that they'd done a thorough job, he ordered them to continue marching north as quickly as possible. Their destination was Westminster, Maryland, an important railroad terminal and the location that Meade was going to choose for the Army's base of supplies. In the late afternoon, the Confederates approached the town from the south. 
At the head of the column was a company of Colonel Williams Wickham's 4th Virginia Cavalry, a Fitzhugh Lee's brigade. On the outskirts of Westminster, the Virginians were fired upon and then charged by an unknown cavalry force. Wickham's men were taken by surprise and quickly retreated back to the main body of Stuart's column after taking a few casualties. Stuart was undeterred by this and ordered scouts to ascertain the size of the force which lay ahead. It turned out to be two companies of the 1st Delaware Cavalry, which had been dispatched by General Robert Shank's Department of Baltimore to protect the supply depot. In total, the two companies were made up of 95 troopers, led by Major Napoleon Knight, which is probably a top five name for a 19th century cavalry officer. Unfortunately, Knight did not live up to his name and fled at the sight of the Confederate cavalry. Stepping into his place was his second-in-command, Captain Charles Corbett, who led his troopers in the gallant charge against the 4th Virginia. When the rebel troopers learned of the identity and troop strength of the force that occupied Westminster, Stuart couldn't believe that a detachment so small would be so cavalier, pardon the pun, as to charge his own division. While figuring out what to do next, Corbett led his two companies in a second charge against about 50 Virginia horse soldiers. The Delawareans came straight at them with their sabers drawn and once again sent Wickham's men scurrying back. The success of Corbett's gambit was short-lived. Stuart then personally led the entire 4th Virginia Cavalry Regiment in a counterattack upon Corbett's men. Now with superior numbers, they routed the Federal troopers. Ultimately, 67 men of the 1st Delaware Cavalry would be killed, wounded, or captured. Among the prisoners included Captain Corbett. The rest of the regiment fled out of town to Baltimore behind Major Knight. When the Confederates finally secured the town, it was 5 p.m., so Stuart decided to rest there for the night though some of the troopers continued to scour the countryside for supplies and signs of Union forces. By the end of the 29th, Stuart's three brigades with 125 captured wagons in tow had made little progress. From Rockville to Westminster was only about 40 miles, which was not nearly enough considering how far behind schedule they were. The Battle of Westminster, or Corbett's Charge as it's usually called, was not a very significant engagement. It was certainly a tactical defeat for the Federals, but Corbett's charge delayed the Confederate cavalry long enough for it to be considered a success on the operational level. The next day, June 30th, the Rebels continued their trek northward toward Union Mills, Maryland. Advanced riders had been sent out in search for signs of the infantry of the 2nd Corps, but by noon, they'd yet to find any. While in Union Mills, Jeb Stewart decided to stop and ended up visiting the home of William Shriver, a local Confederate sympathizer with several sons in the Army. He ended up spending a fair amount of time there, eating lunch and singing songs to the Shriver family. If you're going to criticize Jeb Stewart on one thing, it's that the dude could not pass up a good party. The fun was cut short, however, when cavalry scouts informed Stewart that Union cavalry was spotted in Littlestown, Pennsylvania, about six miles northwest of Union Mills. Especially worrisome was that it was a detachment from the Army of the Potomac, which led Stewart to believe that this force was sent specifically to attack his own. Another significant delay was not what he needed, so he enlisted the help of Herbert Shriver, William's 16-year-old son, to help find an alternate route to avoid the Yankees in Littlestown through Hanover. It seemed as if they'd avoid a fight at first, but when they arrived at the outskirts of Hanover, they found more Federal cavalry. It turned out to be members of the new 3rd Division of the Army of the Potomac's Cavalry Corps, I talked a little bit about this in episode 6, but these two brigades were formerly under the command of Major General Julius Stahl, a Hungarian-born officer. They were part of the Washington defenses, but essentially given to the newly promoted Major General Alfred Pleasanton, commander of the Cavalry Corps. Pleasanton, who thought Stahl was unfit for command, partially because he was foreign-born, 
Pleasanton was not unique in his antipathy toward European-born officers and soldiers, and partially just because he thought he was incompetent. So he had Stahill removed from command. Stahill was replaced by the reckless Brigadier General Hugh Judson Kilpatrick, known to his soldiers as Kill Cavalry. The brigades of his division were led by two of the boy generals, Elon J. Farnsworth and George A. Custer. After the Cavalry Corps had crossed the Potomac and was reorganized, they were sent out to make contact with the Army of Northern Virginia, with Buford's division on the hunt for the Confederate 1st and 3rd Corps, which as we know, they ran into the latter outside of Gettysburg on the 30th and then fought the opening hours of the battle on the 1st. The other two divisions fanned out across Maryland and Pennsylvania in search of Ewell's 2nd Corps and Stewart's three brigades, which were known to have crossed the Potomac on the 28th and were somewhere off to the east. Gregg's division never caught up with Stewart, though twice they ended up in towns the day after the Confederates had passed through or around, Westminster on the 30th and Hanover on the 1st. After stopping in Hanover, they continued toward Gettysburg on the 2nd and ended up in a skirmish with the Stonewall Brigade, which I talked about in the last episode. Kilpatrick's division left Frederick, Maryland with the rest of the cavalry on the 29th and arrived at Littlestown, Pennsylvania around midnight on the 30th. The Federal troopers were mostly happy to be in friendly territory again as they usually received warm welcomes wherever they went in Pennsylvania. Most of Kilpatrick's horse soldiers left Littlestown early in the morning of the 30th en route to Hanover, with the plan of heading northeast to York afterward. It was during the early morning march that the Confederate cavalry was first spotted. It seems as if both sides were eyeing each other from a distance, unsure of their respective identities. Kilpatrick arrived in Hanover to a hearty welcome from the locals, whom Kilpatrick conversed with about the presence of Confederate raiders over the past week. He set up a command post in the home of one of the local townspeople, and waited as the various regiments of his division passed through the town on their way to York. By 9am, the bulk of the Federal cavalry was north of the town, and Kilpatrick set out to join them. The 5th New York Cavalry Regiment was left behind at Hanover, with only the 18th Pennsylvania Cavalry, who was bringing up the rear of the column, yet to reach the town. General Farnsworth was about a mile north of Hanover when the fighting began. As the Pennsylvanians were riding into town, they were attacked by the vanguard of Stuart's force. Stuart quickly mulled his options, and decided that the best path forward would be to punch through the town, and drive out the defenders so they could continue on their way. He had Colonel John R. Chambliss, in command of Rooney Lee's brigade, order the 13th Virginia Cavalry to deploy on either side of the Littlestown Road. Two of McGregor's batteries of horse artillery also deployed and fired off several rounds at the Federal Cavalry. Lieutenant Colonel Jefferson C. Phillips led the 13th in an attack against the rear guard of the Pennsylvania Cavalry and spurred their horses into a mad gallop toward the town. While one Confederate regiment attacked their rear, another came riding hard on their right flank. The 2nd North Carolina Cavalry charged in from the south and routed the Pennsylvanians. As they retreated through the town, they both ran into the 5th New York. General Farnsworth led the New Yorkers in a counterattack against the Confederates. A fierce fight broke out in the streets on the south side of Hanover, which pushed into the center of town. Some of the Pennsylvania troopers regrouped and got back into the fight. The Federals had the momentum now and began to push the Confederate cavalry back out of town. The 2nd North Carolina's commander, Lieutenant Colonel William Payne, had his horse shot out from underneath him, and he fell into a vat of tanning dye. When he emerged, he was a dark brown color from head to toe, which amused his Yankee captors. Now leaderless, the Tar Heel troopers retreated. Things quieted down in Hanover for the time being, but more Union cavalry rode in from Littlestown. Two Michigan regiments of Custer's Wolverine Brigade harassed Fitz Lee's brigade as they were coming up to support Chambliss. 
The 5th Michigan rode around the Virginians, but the outnumbered 6th Michigan decided to give them a challenge. The 6th was led by Colonel George Gray, who had recently been arrested for drunkenness on duty, but on the morning of the 30th effectively held Lee's brigade at bay. They did take a few casualties, many of the Michiganders were captured, but Gray left one squadron under the command of Major Peter A. Weber to deal with the rebels as the rest of the 6th slipped into town. Weber's men withstood several charges from the Virginia troopers, and with help from armed local farmers, engaged with the rebel cavalry long enough to keep them from concentrating their efforts on attacking Farnsworth's troops in the town. Weber's squadron would have to wait until the cover of darkness to rejoin the regiment. The rest of Farnsworth's brigade arrived on the scene, as well as General Kilpatrick, who made a hotel in town his headquarters. Kilpatrick let Farnsworth handle the fighting while he sent couriers out to General Pleasanton, requesting reinforcements. Farnsworth's fresh regiments, the 1st West Virginia and the 1st Vermont Cavalry Regiments, joined the fight, and the battle in the southern end of town heated up again, particularly around the farm owned by Samuel Forney. Jeb Stewart's headquarters was in the path of the Union counterattack, and his position was overrun. One of his staff officers was severely wounded by a saber slash from one Federal trooper, and the Stewart himself was nearly captured. It was only because of the athleticism of his horse, Virginia, that he was able to escape. The Charger managed to jump a 15-foot wide gully which allowed him to get to safety. The other half of Chambliss's brigade finally came up, and Farnsworth's troopers fell back toward the town, after which came a brief hiatus in the battle as both generals sorted out their respective commands. During this time, Custer's brigade rode back into Hanover. Lee's brigade arrived to support Chambliss, and then weighed Hampton a little while later. Hampton had four guns deploy, which bombarded Union positions in and north of Hanover. The Federals brought up their own horse artillery, and both sides would trade shots for a couple of hours. Meanwhile, General Custer prepared to lead his troops for the first time in battle. Only a few days before had he been promoted and taken command of the brigade. More than a few of his soldiers had never even seen him up close, if at all. Many episodes back, I had described Custer's attire, which was flamboyant and was emblematic of a Romantic-era cavalier. His troopers thought it amusing, but the boy general impressed them as a leader. The 6th Michigan was dismounted and advanced on foot toward the Confederate left flank. 600 troopers marched forward until they were within range of one of the Confederate cannons. When they opened fire, they killed or wounded around 15 men and sent the rest of the gunners in retreat. The counterattack from the 1st Virginia Cavalry would drive back the Wolverines. Custer rallied the men, and they made a second attack, but made no headway. After that, no more significant action occurred. Neither side had really gained any advantage, nor did they want to attack the other. Both divisions just seemed content to wait for nightfall. Stuart's slowness once again proved costly. He meant to be in Hanover on the 28th, now was the night of the 30th, and he was still south of Hanover. Using the cover of darkness, the Confederate cavalry maneuvered to the east of town, and they slipped by the Federals. Kilpatrick made no serious effort to stop Stuart, and the next morning he sent scouts out to no avail. They'd end up sending some faulty intelligence to General Pleasanton, and then headed to Gettysburg on the 2nd. In order to make up for lost time, Stuart had his troopers march all night. They covered nearly 25 miles by the time they reached Dover, Pennsylvania. He read in newspapers that Early's division had marched through York, but they were nowhere to be found when he was there. It actually only missed the Confederate infantry by about 12 hours. And I think one interesting hypothetical to consider is what if Stuart had turned west at that moment? It was still early on the 1st, right around the time that the battle had began in earnest. Likely his cavalry wouldn't be able to reach the field by the time the fighting had concluded that day, but arriving in town 24 hours before they actually did might have made some difference on the second day. 
Before he could make any decision about where to go next, his division needed rest. Men were falling out of the saddle from exhaustion. The horses needed a break and to be fed and watered. Scouts were sent out in multiple directions to make contact with Early, or any other part of the army for that matter. Stuart ultimately decided to march northwest toward Carlisle, where he knew the rest of Ewell's corps had been recently. After about four hours of sleep, the Confederate troopers mounted up and rode another 25 miles to Carlisle. The rebel infantry had moved out of the town the day before, and in the time since, 2,000 soldiers of the Pennsylvania and New York militia under the command of General William F. Smith had occupied the town. As Stuart's cavalry neared Carlisle, he was alerted to the presence of Union troops, though at first he was unaware that it was militia. Even after leaving behind Hampton's brigade in York County to guard their large wagon train and forage for supplies, the two brigades he did have outnumbered Smith's green troops. After briefly scouting the area, he learned of their true identity, and sent a courier with a white flag of truce to demand that Smith abandon the town, or evacuate all women and children because Stuart intended to bombard it if Smith refused the former. William F. Smith was a veteran officer of the Army of the Potomac. He was a West Point graduate of 1845, where he finished fourth in the class. It was there that he garnered the unfortunate nickname Baldy, due to his prematurely thinning hair. His high standing in the academy led him to the Topographical Engineer Corps, where he spent most of the antebellum years. At the beginning of the Civil War, he was a member of then-Army Commander General Irvin McDowell's staff at the First Battle of Bull Run. By the fall of 1862, he was leading the Sixth Corps, but like many generals in the Army of the Potomac, he lost faith in the abilities of General Ambrose Burnside after the debacle of Fredericksburg, and conspired to get him removed from Army command. Burnside ultimately was sacked, but so was Smith. The Senate didn't confirm his promotion to Major General, and he was removed from Corps command. He didn't resign from the Army, which led to his assignment to the Department of the Susquehanna at the beginning of the Gettysburg Campaign. So when Smith was given the opportunity to hand Carlisle over to the Confederates without a fight, he simply refused. Quote, shell away and be damned, unquote, was his reply. Calling Stewart's bluff turned out to be the right move. Truth be told, neither general really wanted a fight. Smith's militia were no match for a veteran cavalry force, especially if they were outnumbered. But on the other hand, Stewart's division was exhausted. Many were sleeping while on horseback, and more than one would fall out of the saddle. And zooming out a little bit, his task was not to capture Carlisle or to attack Union militia, but rather find Ewell's corps. Hoping that a strong showing of their cannons would scare them off, Stewart ordered his horse artillery to deploy facing west toward the town square. They began indiscriminately shelling Carlisle. For their part, the Pennsylvania and New York militia held their own. They responded with their own artillery, and for several hours dueled with the rebel gunners. Late in the evening, one of the riders that had been sent out to find the Second Corps had returned with word of the meeting engagement, which occurred earlier that day near Gettysburg. Six days since his last communication with the Army, Stuart finally had positive confirmation of their whereabouts. Before he set his division in motion to the southwest, he ordered the troopers to set fire to the Carlisle Barracks, which today is the second oldest U.S. Army installation still in existence. Today, it's home to the U.S. Army War College. Originally established by the British in 1757, it had once served as an important frontier post to protect Scots-Irish colonial settlers against Indian raids. Ironically, in the late 1830s, it became the location of the U.S. School of Cavalry Practice. Recent graduates of the U.S. Military Academy that had entered the cavalry branch received their training there. Stewart had gone straight to the frontier after his graduation from West Point, but both of his brigade commanders that were present, Fitzhugh Lee and John Chambliss, attended the cavalry school at Carlisle. 
Colonel Richard Beale, commander of the 9th Virginia Cavalry, had been a student at Dickinson College, also located in Carlisle. Confederate troopers set fire to most of the buildings at the barracks with a few exceptions, one being the stone guardhouse, which was one of the few non-wooden buildings and therefore too difficult to burn down in a timely manner. That building actually still exists today. Another being the adjutant's quarters, because the post-adjutant was Lieutenant Thomas McGregor, who just so happened to be a friend of General Fitzhugh Lee, so the building was spared. In addition to the army buildings, the local lumber yard and gas works were also torched. Several buildings at Carlisle caught fire as well, but this was slightly less deliberate because it was the artillery shells that caused this. Finally, around 2 a.m. on July 2nd, Jeb Stewart's cavalry was on the move again, this time knowing they were heading in the right direction. It was not until late in the day on July 2nd that most of the Confederate cavalry would saunter into Gettysburg. Stewart arrived in the mid-afternoon ahead of his three brigades and had some sort of meeting with General Lee. Now, this is another one of those moments of Gettysburg lore that has seeped into the popular consciousness. Stuart, several days behind schedule, reaches Lee's headquarters after the fighting was underway, or had already concluded, and Lee proceeded to dress down his subordinate. In reality, we don't really know what transpired between Lee and Stuart on July 2nd. We do know that there was some sort of conference between the army commander and his cavalry leader, but there were only four men present to witness any part of this, Lee, Stewart, and two of Lee's staff officers, Majors Charles Venable and Charles Marshall. Unfortunately, none of them wrote any account of the meeting. Of the four, Charles Marshall wrote the most in the post-war years, and he was highly critical of Stewart. Marshall believed that Stewart should have been court-martialed, if not executed for his actions during the campaign. Nevertheless, he said nothing of what was said between Lee and Stewart on July 2nd. Stewart would not write any post-war memoirs, which I'll talk about in a later episode, but during the war he did write frequently to his wife Flora, and based on his other letters, it seems unlikely that he would have failed to mention the verbal lashing from Lee that he supposedly received. Any description of this meeting would have been based on rumors and hearsay, and I don't doubt that Lee was agitated by Stewart's absence. He made that well known to many other officers in the days leading up to the Cavaliers' reappearance. It's possible that it affected his opinion of Stewart in some way, but from all accounts, Lee viewed him as a son, and it's hard to imagine that the past week changed that all too much. Again, it's something we'll never fully know the answer to. The Union and Confederate cavalry would clash one more time on the road to Gettysburg. Stuart ordered Wade Hampton to protect the far left flank of the Confederate army. Hampton's brigade, which was escorting the captured wagon train, left York, Pennsylvania the day before and reached the small village of Hunterstown, about four miles northeast of Ewell's Corps, on the afternoon of the 2nd. It turned out to be a smart move, because General Kilpatrick's cavalry division had similar ideas. Kilpatrick sent Custer's brigade in the direction of Hunterstown to scout the Confederate left flank. Hampton himself had several close calls of Union cavalrymen near Hunterstown. He dueled with two federal troopers, one of whom shot him in the chest and another slashed him in the head with a saber. Hampton was enraged by this and was in severe pain, but survived both wounds. Not long after, troopers from Cobb's Legion came riding fast. They clashed with Custer's men and had been forced to retreat. Hampton ordered the rest of his regiments to move to confront the Yankee cavalry. When the rebels approached, Kilpatrick ordered Custer to attack them in order to buy time for the rest of the division to come up. With just one company of the 6th Michigan Cavalry, Custer led the Wolverines in a mounted charge. The road they were attacking on was too narrow, which forced them to ride in a column, only four riders wide. Hampton's men easily gunned down the Michiganders, and the charge fell apart quickly. Custer's horse was shot out from under him. It was somewhat miraculous that he wasn't seriously hurt from the fall or wounded by Confederate riflemen. 
his orderly, Norval Churchill, managed to avoid being shot as well, and Custer jumped on the back of his horse, which they both rode to safety. The boy general once again survived another close call. Hampton's brigade outnumbered the rest of the Wolverine Brigade, but Custer's charge did in fact allow time for Farnsworth's brigade to arrive, and the Confederates were content to just hold tight. The horse artillery of both sides fired away at each other until sunset. Under the cover of darkness, Hampton's brigade joined the rest of the army closer to Gettysburg. I don't want to spend too much more time on Jeb Stuart, but I do want to just comment on the impact of his actions on the campaign. Before the Gettysburg campaign, Stuart's reputation was probably at its apex. He was a cavalry leader of unequaled talent at that point in the war. His Union counterpart, Alfred Pleasanton, was by far the lesser general. Of his fellow Confederates in the Western Theater, only Major General Joe Wheeler had ever commanded a cavalry force the size of Stuart's, and I'd pick Stuart in a heartbeat if I'm making a fantasy team. You could make the argument that General Nathan Bedford Forrest would ultimately make a better cavalry leader, but I don't think that had yet to become clear in the summer of 1863. But the Gettysburg Campaign would forever tarnish Stuart's reputation as the vaunted leader of Lee's mounted branch of the army. First, his division was badly surprised and barely managed to stave off defeat at Brandy Station. Following that battle, his troopers never could gain the upper hand on the much-improved Federal cavalry. His decision to launch a raid much further to the east of the main body of the army would prove to be near-disastrous. Only in perfect or near-perfect circumstances could this feat have been accomplished, but little things just kept adding up. Defenders of Stuart would maintain that only three brigades of cavalry went with him. Jenkins, Jones, Robertson, and Imboden's cavalry brigades all could have been used more effectively to screen the army's movements and keep tabs on the Army of the Potomac. Ultimately, this still reflects negatively in Stuart, because he took his three best brigades and most trusted leaders with him, and left the army with mostly inexperienced, mediocre horse soldiers. He largely made this decision because he didn't want to work with the ill-tempered Grumbled Jones, whom he didn't get along with or the lackluster Beverly Robertson, because he thought his brigade would slow them down. In hindsight, that seems pretty dumb considering how slowly his division moved after it left the Loudoun Valley. Obviously, counterfactuals like this are not of much use in the academic sense, because it's impossible to prove what the outcome would be, but one can't help but wonder if he'd left Hampton's or Fitzhugh Lee's brigades behind and taken Robertson, Jones, or Jenkins with him. Stuart made for a convenient scapegoat for the rest of the army. To steal a line from historians Eric Wittenberg and David Petruzzi, there was plenty of blame to go around. The Knight of the Golden Spurs is an easy target for fellow Confederate generals and certain lost cause writers after the war, though Jubal Early, maybe the most prominent of the Army of Northern Virginia lost causers, did not think Stuart's actions were all that detrimental. One caveat I'll say with that, though, the criticisms that came from lost cause writers were motivated more by political implications of the time than what actually had occurred during the war. I think logically you'd pick Robert E. Lee as the person who deserves the most criticism because, after all, he's in charge of the whole operation, and he did approve of Stuart's raid. But the ex-Confederates largely circled the wagons around Lee, and so others needed to fill the void. I think the more you study the battle, you come to realize that there's no one moment or one person that caused either army to win or lose. The final results were the accumulation of many actions and reactions, some of which were more important than others, but I do think it's fair to say that the Battle of Gettysburg probably would not have occurred in the way that it did if Stuart had been with the army.
The aftermath of the battle on July 2nd was one that had become commonplace for the veterans of both armies. Wounded soldiers in the front streamed into field hospitals in the rear. Although the system of handling the dead and wounded had improved since 1861, a large battle such as one that had just occurred would easily overwhelm the medical capabilities of either side. There were several big problems. One, there wasn't enough infrastructure to handle all of the casualties. Both armies had to improvise, and almost any unused building was turned into a field hospital. But for the Federals, there simply were just not enough buildings in the farmland south of town to house all that needed shelter. Secondly, supplies were running dangerously low. Meade had taken steps to ensure that the army was well supplied, but complications had arisen. In the first episode of this series, I talked about how important rail lines were. Keeping close to important railroad depots allowed for an army to keep itself well supplied. Moving supplies by wagon was a much slower and more tedious process. It didn't help that over a hundred wagons had been captured or destroyed by Jeb Stuart's cavalry a few days before. The Federals were in short supply of just about everything. Food was a problem, but one that could at least be solved by purchasing from the locals. Medical supplies were much harder to come by, particularly on the scale required to treat thousands of wounded soldiers. Another issue was that the hospital system in the Army of the Potomac was organized by division and corps. Things had become so confused on July 2nd, especially after the collapse of the Third Corps line. Units were intermingled, and often ended up hundreds of yards, if not miles away from where they'd begun that day. The situation was one that was becoming increasingly chaotic and confused. Lieutenant George Benedict, a staff officer to General George Stannard of the 2nd Vermont Brigade, recalled, quote, I was stopped hundreds of times by wounded men, sometimes accompanied by a comrade but often wandering alone, to be asked in faint tones the way to the hospital of their division, till the sense of bloodshed and suffering of the day became absolutely appalling. It seemed to me as if every square yard of the ground, for many square miles, must have its blood stain. Unquote. Captain Charles H. Wygant began July 2nd as commander of Company A of the 124th New York, also known as the Orange Blossoms. I talked a little bit about the Orange Blossoms back in episode 10. They were part of Ward's Brigade of Bernie's Division of the 3rd Corps and were part of the defense of House Ridge. Its commander, Colonel Augustus Van Horn Ellis, was killed during the battle. Its second-in-command, Lieutenant Colonel Francis M. Cummins, was wounded and then its third, Major James Cromwell, was also killed in action. That would leave Captain Wygan in command of the regiment by the end of the day. Years later, he would record what he witnessed in the aftermath of the battle on July 2nd. Quote, The Third Corps Hospital, to which nearly all our wounded were taken, had been established in a grove about a half mile to the left of the rear of where we were then lying. Just after dark, I decided to walk over to it and try to find the poor fellows and learn how they were being cared for. When about halfway there, I fell in with a party of stretcher bearers with loaded stretchers. They were moving in single file along what appeared to be a beaten path and said they belonged to the Third Corps. There were but two men to each stretcher, and they all seemed nearly worn out and were trudging along very slowly with their heavy loads toward the hospital. As I hurried by one after another, I stooped and peered into the faces of the wounded to see if there were any of the 124th among them, but it was too dark for me to determine positively in that way, and so I asked each one to what regiment he belonged. The first was a member of the 3rd Michigan, the second was a sergeant of the 63rd New York, the third was a Pennsylvanian, the fourth made no answer to my inquiry, though his eyes were wide open and I was sure he was looking at me. Instinctively, I placed my hand on his forehead, expecting to find it hot and dry, but instead it was cold and clammy. He was dead. 
The scene at the hospital was one of the most horrid imaginable. During the afternoon and evening, nearly 3,000 wounded men had been brought there, and others were continually arriving. The ground of the entire grove, which was several acres in extent, seemed to be literally covered with them, and such noises filled the air as I had never heard before and trust may never reach my ears again. The wounded of our brigade had been among the first to arrive and were lying, I had no doubt, near the center of the grove. The thick foliage caused dark shadows to fall upon these acres of mangled, bleeding human forms. Away down through the trees, flickering lights could be seen the reflections of which fell with ghastly effect upon the corps of surgeons who, with coats off and sleeves rolled up, were gathered at or moving rapidly to and fro about the amputating tables. After a moment's hesitation at the edge of the woods, I resolved to attempt to pick my way through towards where I hoped to find the objects of my search, but as I moved on among those, for the most part, prostrate men, their groans and piteous appeals for help appalled me. Several in a state of delirium were shouting as if upon the battlefield, and others, believing I was a surgeon, besought me to stop just a moment and bind up their wounds, from which their lifeblood was ebbing. Presently, a man I was about stepping over sprang to his feet, shook in front of me a bandage he had just torn from a dreadful, gaping wound in his breast, and uttered a hideous laughing shriek that sent the hot blood spurting from his wound into my very face. Then he threw up his arms as if a bullet had just entered his heart, and fell heavily forward across a poor, mangled fellow, whose piercing wails of anguish were heart-rending beyond description. I could endure no more, and wheeling about, hurried over the wounded and dying to the open field again. Unquote. Probably the most disturbing thing was the constant sound of cries from wounded and dying soldiers that filled the air. General George Meade feared that the awful noise would demoralize the soldiers on the front line, so he came up with an interesting solution. Captain Benjamin Thompson of the 111th New York later wrote, quote, All the bands in the army were ordered up and placed between the troops and the hospitals. They played by detachments all night to drown the cries of the wounded and those who were being operated upon. They played, when this cruel war is over, for hours together, and while we sympathized with the sentiment, we execrated the doleful and monotonous music. Unquote. At 8 p.m., the same time that the attack on Cemetery Ridge was ending, and the attacks on Culp's and Cemetery Hills were underway, George Meade, who had recently arrived at his headquarters at the Leicester House, dictated a message that was to be sent to General Henry Halleck. It read, quote, the enemy attacked me about 4 p.m. this day, and after one of the severest contests of the war, was repulsed at all points. We have suffered considerably in killed and wounded, among the former are Brigadier Generals Paul and Zook, and among the wounded, General Sickles, Barlow, Graham, and Warren Slightly. We have taken a large number of prisoners. I shall remain in my present position tomorrow, but I'm not prepared to say, until better advised of the condition of the army whether my operations will be of an offensive or defense character, unquote. The dispatch would have to wait to be sent, because the Confederate attacks on the Union right flank were dangerously close to the Baltimore Pike. They feared that any relay rider might be killed or captured attempting to get the dispatch out of Gettysburg and to the nearest working telegraph line. But it showed that before the fighting had even concluded on the second day, Meade was already determined not to withdraw the army. This will be an important point later. As Meade got a bit of a breather at the Leicester House, various officers and staff aides began to arrive. Everyone was in some state of exhaustion. Lieutenant Washington Roebling remembered that, quote, I returned to headquarters, too tired to eat, too exhausted to sleep, only to learn that equally severe fighting had raged around Culp's Hill and the cemetery. We had barely held our own, unquote. 
Colonel George Sharp, head of the Army's Bureau of Military Information, came in caked in mud and dust. Sharp would later write of Meade that, quote, his chin was resting in his hand, and evidently deep in thought, unquote. Snacks were set out on the table for the men by John Marley, Meade's personal servant. Meade, who was neither a teetotaler nor a heavy drinker, said to his subordinates, quote, This is one of the occasions when I think a man is justified in taking a drink of whiskey, unquote. Marley furnished a bottle and set it down at the table with the food. Meade then said, quote, Colonel Sharp, won't you take a glass of whiskey? I think it will do you good, unquote. Sharp replied, quote, General, I think you ought to take a drink. You need it more than any of us, unquote. Meade took the half-empty bottle and held it to a candle on the table and said back to Sharp, quote, No, I don't think I care for any whiskey. I would like a cup of coffee, unquote. Taking a cue from their commanding general, none of the other staff officers would take a shot. Meade then got down to business. He requested Sharp to provide reliable information on the current strength of the enemy army. Sharp left to consult with one of his intelligence officers and told the general he'd return in a couple of hours. The army commander sent out staff officers to locate all corps commanders for a meeting to be held at his headquarters. Over the next hour or so, the various generals of the high command of the army trickled into the Leicester House. Attendees would include Corps Commanders, Generals John Newton, Winfield Scott Hancock, who is now in command of the Third Corps, George Sykes, John Sedgwick, Oliver Howard, and Henry Slocum. Also in attendance were Division or Temporary Corps Commanders such as Generals David Burney, John Gibbon, and Alpheus Williams. Finally, two staff officers, Generals Governor Warren and Dan Butterfield, would round out the bunch. Hancock and Gibbon were the last to arrive at Meade's headquarters. Most of the generals were standing or sitting around the table in the middle of the small room that was about 10 to 12 square feet in size. Governor Warren had fallen asleep at the foot of the bed in the corner of the room. Obviously, all were exhausted from the day's action and lack of sleep, but Warren had also received a wound in the neck, and it seemed that once the adrenaline had left his body, he could no longer will himself to be awake. Once all of the officers had joined the meeting, Meade went about asking each one to detail the status of his respective command and their knowledge of the overall situation. The consensus was that the Third Corps was pretty much kaput at that point, and every Army Corps, save for the Sixth, had taken quite a few casualties that day, but their lines, except for the vacated trenches on Lower Culp's Hill, were still intact. John Newton expressed that he felt the Army was in a bad position. John Gibbon pressed him as to why, and Newton replied that it was because their unprotected flanks could be easily turned by the Confederates. This point had been made the previous day by Meade, Hancock, and Warren. Dan Butterfield posed a question to each of the generals, quote, Should the army remain in its present position or take up some other near its base of supplies? Unquote. Gibbon, the most junior in rank aside from the sleeping Warren, answered, quote, Remain here, and make such corrections in our position as may be deemed necessary, but take no step which even looks like a retreat. Unquote. Even though some generals such as Newton had reservations, Gibbon's answer was the consensus in the room. General Slocum, the second highest ranking officer, responded simply, quote, Stay and fight it out. Unquote. Butterfield asked a follow-up question, quote, If the army remains in its position, should it attack or wait for the enemy to attack? Unquote. There was a little more debate on this issue, but again, they all mostly agreed with Gibbon, who said that, quote, the army is in no condition to attack, unquote. A few of the generals believed that an attack could or should be made under the right circumstances. Hancock felt that they should remain on the defensive unless their line of communications was cut off. Sedgwick felt that an attack could be made on the 4th at the earliest. 
Howard believed that the army should wait until 4 p.m. on the 3rd, and if the Confederates had not made a move, they should make an assault. But after discussing the two questions posed and holding a vote, it was decided that the army would stay in its current position, but make no offensive, operational, or tactical move for the time being. To this, Meade said, quote, Such then is the decision, unquote. He had basically come to the same decision three hours before, but now felt confident that his high command agreed. During the council, he called for an aid, and the message to Halleck was sent with a rider down the Baltimore Pike after 11 p.m., though it would not reach the general-in-chief for nearly 18 hours. Gibbon recalled that Meade, quote, said very little except now and then to make some comment, unquote. Unlike some of his predecessors, Meade was not an autocratic leader. I think it's also fair to say that because of his newness to command, he felt that he couldn't just make unilateral decisions without first earning the confidence of his generals. The meeting adjourned around midnight. Meade conversed with a few of his generals before they returned to their respective commands. But it seems as if the latter was not happy about Hancock being placed in command of the Third Corps. John Gibbon claimed that he overheard Meade reply, quote, General Hancock is your superior, and I claim the right to issue the order, unquote. Gibbon also talked with Meade and expressed that he felt unworthy to be included in the council considering that he was only a brigadier general and only an acting commander of the 2nd Corps since Hancock was tasked with reorganizing the 3rd, but Meade assured Gibbon that he wanted him there. Meade also told him that, quote, if Lee attacks tomorrow, it'll be on your front, unquote. Gibbon asked him why. Meade replied, quote, because he has made attacks on my left and failed, and on my right and failed. Now, if he concludes to try it again, he will try the center, right on your front, unquote. To which Gibbon responded, quote, Well, General, I hope he does, and if he does, we shall whip him, unquote. Meade was still up when Colonel Sharp returned. Sharp had received a report from John C. Babcock. Babcock was a civilian scout who worked for the Bureau of Military Information, but was usually referred to as Captain or later Colonel Babcock, though he was not officially in the Army. Babcock had created a detailed report, which listed the Confederate order of battle. Babcock and other BMI officers had interrogated hundreds of captured rebels and found that there were prisoners from every brigade in the Army of Northern Virginia, except those from Pickett's division. In post-war accounts, Sharp would claim that his intelligence gave Meade the assurance that he needed to stay at Gettysburg, but this is not supported by anyone who was present at the time. Only three men, Generals Gibbon and Alpheus Williams and Gibbon's aide-de-camp, Lieutenant Frank Haskell, wrote accounts of the Council of War, and none of them corroborated Sharp's allegation. And again, we know that Meade had basically made the decision to remain in their current position unless dissuaded by his corps commanders, which he was not. A few hours later, more intelligence reports came in, this time from Captain Ulrich Dahlgren, that gave Meade even more confidence. Dahlgren had been a member of General Joseph Hooker's staff and was kept on by Meade. He was 21 years old and the son of a well-known naval officer and cannon designer, Rear Admiral John Dahlgren. A few days earlier, Captain Dahlgren asked for permission to take a small detachment of cavalry and scout for the Confederate Army in the Cumberland Valley. Dahlgren and ten troopers from General Wesley Merritt's brigade ambushed a group of Confederate soldiers who were guarding two couriers at Greencastle, Pennsylvania, earlier on July 2nd. After combing through letters that the couriers carried, they discovered dispatches from President Jefferson Davis and Adjutant General Samuel Cooper intended for Robert E. Lee. The contents of the dispatches revealed that no more reinforcements could be spared for Lee's invasion, and his proposal to create a diversionary army led by General P.G.T. Beauregard that would menace Washington, D.C. from the south had been rejected. 
Meade's receipt of this information didn't really affect his decision to stay at Gettysburg, as detractors would later claim. Again, he had already come to that conclusion, but it did reinforce the validity of Colonel Sharp's report on the Confederate Army. Lee had only one fresh division left to throw at the Union Army, and he would not be receiving any more troops. The Army of the Potomac still had quite a few problems that were not really addressed by the Council of War, mostly logistical ones. Maintaining their defensive lines might have made tactical sense, but the lack of food and forage was a real issue. In a letter to his daughter, General Alpheus Williams wrote, quote, We had outrun our supplies, and as all the railroad lines which come near us were broken, there were no depots within reach. Unquote. Williams's division had about one day's worth of rations left, but most of the rest of the army didn't even have that. He mentioned the possibility of buying from the locals and feeding the men, quote, with beef cattle and flour, which possibly could be got together, we could eke out a few half-fed days, unquote. Of equal, if not even more significant concern, was the inability to feed the horses and the mules, quote, all which must be fed, or the army is dissolved, unquote, Williams surmised. Of course, it's dangerous to not feed the soldiers. That would clearly take its toll on the morale of the army, but they could scrape by. However, if the draft animals were not properly fed, it would literally cripple the army. If they started physically breaking down, there would be no way to move the artillery pieces, caissons, ambulances, or supply wagons. Just how Meade's staff intended to solve this crisis remained to be seen. In contrast to the Army of the Potomac, the Confederate High Command held no council of war on Seminary Ridge on the night of July 2nd. Of the three corps commanders, only Hill met with Lee that night. Both Ewell and Longstreet sent couriers with reports of the situation on their respective fronts. The fact that Longstreet didn't come to Lee's headquarters after the fighting had subsided was unusual, as it was his norm to do so. Instead, he made his own headquarters at a schoolhouse on the southern end of the battlefield, and went over the disposition of his troops. One new development was that the last of the Confederate infantry had finally arrived. Major General George Pickett's division, consisting of three Virginia brigades, left Chambersburg at 2 a.m. that morning. They approached Gettysburg more than 12 hours later. When Hood's division opened the attack on Devil's Den, Pickett's men could hear the sounds of musket and cannon fire from their position about three or four miles behind the main line. The question of whether or not Pickett's division could have gone into the fight that afternoon is one that's not often asked, but certainly falls into the pile of Gettysburg what-ifs. Obviously, the biggest issue was if they had enough gas left in the tank to participate in the fighting that day. For comparison, Law's brigade of Hood's division had a fairly similar march. They left about an hour later than Pickett's men, but also had a slightly shorter march and less soldiers, so there was less crowding on the road. Law's Alabamians arrived just west of Gettysburg around 11 a.m., and basically marched straight into the fight with little time to rest or procure water for the dehydrated men. Captain Henry T. Owen of the 18th Virginia recalled hearing rumors that Longstreet wanted Pickett's division to join the First Corps attack as soon as possible. George Pickett reported to Longstreet immediately upon his arrival, but according to one of his staff officers, Captain Edward Baird, Pickett told his corps commander that his, quote, men are exhausted and must have rest before going any further, unquote. Some officers who displayed some hubris claimed that the march had, in fact, not exhausted the foot soldiers. Again, I think the comparison to Law's brigade is apt. 
The Alabamians attacked Devil's Den and Little Round Top with determination, but their attack lacked enough momentum to take the latter position. I think the addition of Pickett's men could have made a difference, but only if they'd been used in the right place at the right time. Lee and Longstreet were alleged to have both told Pickett separately that they, quote, will have work for him tomorrow, unquote. Before I go any further, I want to talk about Pickett and his division, as they play a very important, if not infamous, role on the third day of the battle. George Edward Pickett was 38 years old and a native of Richmond, Virginia. As was the case of most of the high-ranking Confederate officers, he grew up part of the wealthy slaveholding planter class. His family was of French Huguenot descent and owned a plantation at Turkey Island in Henrico County, Virginia. Pickett's first cousin was none other than a future fellow Confederate general and division commander, Henry Heath. As a teenager, he lived in Illinois, where he worked as a clerk in the law office of his uncle, Andrew Johnston. Through his uncle, he ended up studying law under John T. Stewart, whose legal partner was none other than Abraham Lincoln. Not long after, Pickett would receive an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy, and legend goes that it was Lincoln who nominated him. This is undoubtedly untrue, because Lincoln was only a state representative at the time and lacked the ability to make such appointments, but it seems likely that the two were acquainted with each other. The young Virginian ended up at West Point, where he was popular with many of his classmates, which included a slightly older cadet, James Longstreet. Pickett was not particularly interested in study and only put in enough effort to be able to graduate. And when I say he did the bare minimum, I mean that literally. He finished 59th out of 59 in the class of 1846. I've mentioned this several times over the course of the series, but the class of 46 also included future Civil War generals like Thomas Stonewall Jackson and George McClellan, just to name a few. He seemed destined for a mediocre army career, but after the United States provoked a war with Mexico, Pickett became an unlikely hero. He was part of Winfield Scott's campaign, and the young second lieutenant won fame at the Battle of Chapultepec. Chapultepec was a fortress that guarded Mexico City, and its fall would lead to the capture of the capital. When American forces assaulted Chapultepec, Brevet Major James Longstreet carried the regimental colors of the 8th U.S. Infantry until he was wounded in the thigh. He handed the flag off to Lieutenant Pickett, who climbed over the wall and planted the flag on the roof of the fortress. After his Mexican War service, he continued life as a career army officer, serving on various frontier posts. While in Texas, he challenged fellow officer Winfield Scott Hancock to a duel for unknown reasons, but Hancock declined. Pickett married twice, but both of his wives died. The first, Sally Minge, who came from a prominent Virginia family, died in childbirth. The second was Morning Mist, a hyena Indian that he met while serving at Fort Bellingham in Washington Territory. Though marriage to an indigenous woman was technically not legal, it was a fairly common practice for army officers on the frontier. She gave birth to a son, but she also died not long after. Pickett was involved in one other notable pre-Civil War incident that is usually referred to as the Pig War, after an American farmer killed a pig owned by the British Hudson Bay Company on San Juan Island. The dispute nearly escalated into a full-blown military conflict between the British Empire and the United States, until a settlement was negotiated that gave the San Juan Islands to the U.S. George McClellan would later allege that Pickett and Brigadier General William Harney had conspired to start a war in order to unite the increasingly divided country against the British, though Granville O'Holler, then a major in the army, would make the opposite claim, that it was actually done as a way to distract the U.S. military and allow the South time to secede and prepare for war. I haven't really done enough research to really have much of an opinion on the matter, but the latter assertion does have some ring of truth to it. 
A popular theory was that the U.S. government went to war against the Mormons in 1857 and 1858 for similar reasons. Pickett left Fort Bellingham following the firing on Fort Sumter and Virginia's subsequent secession. His journey from Washington Territory to Washington, D.C. took so long that he missed the First Battle of Bull Run before he could resign his U.S. Army commission and accept his commission as an officer in the Confederate Army. Without having led troops in combat, he was quickly promoted to Brigadier General and then subsequently led his brigade in several battles during the Peninsula Campaign. He developed a reputation as a solid brigade commander and a bit of a dandy. Though he wasn't a cavalry officer, he did have that cavalier spirit. He wore a small blue kepi, whereas most Confederate generals wore wide-brimmed hats. His uniform was said to be well-tailored, and his black boots were always polished. And he almost always carried a riding crop, whether he was on horseback or on foot. He had a long mustache that drooped down past his mouth and then was curled upward with wax, and his shoulder-length hair was oiled into ringlets. Pickett could often be smelled before seen because he was known to wear strongly scented perfumes. He led his brigade in a decisive assault at the Battle of Gaines's Mill, though he would receive a severe wound in the shoulder which forced him out of action for several months. He missed the Second Manassas and Maryland campaigns, but upon his return he was promoted to Major General in Division Command. His division saw little action at Fredericksburg and missed the Battle of Chancellorsville altogether. Most of Longstreet's corps was detached from the army in order to perform a separate operation on the south side of Virginia. Their primary objectives were to gather food for the army and to capture the city of Suffolk. Other than a few skirmishers and minor battles, Pickett's division didn't do much fighting during the Suffolk campaign. In fact, most of the action he got came from his courtship with a 19-year-old woman named LaSalle Corbell, better known as Sally. Sally Corbell was the daughter of wealthy slave-owning planters in Chuckatuck, Virginia. The twice-widowed general was almost exactly twice her age when their relationship began, and for most of the campaign he seemed more interested in wooing her than leading his division. Longstreet was annoyed by his constant absences, which led Pickett to sneak around his commander to see her. Major Moxley Sorrell, Longstreet's chief of staff, would later write, quote, I don't think his division benefited by such carpet night doings in the field, unquote. Pickett's division rejoined the army just after Chancellorsville, but two of his five brigades were left behind in Virginia, Brigadier General Montgomery Corses and Brigadier General Michael Jenkinson's brigades. Corses was left behind at Hanover Junction, Virginia, and had orders to march northward, but at the last minute was recalled when Federal Cavalry gave President Davis concerns about the safety of the capital. By that time, it was probably too late for Corses' brigade to have caught up with the army in time for the battle. So Pickett brought with him three brigades to Gettysburg on the afternoon of the 2nd. His most senior brigade commander was Brigadier General Richard Brooke Garnett. Garnett was a 45-year-old Virginian. He grew up on a plantation in Tidewater, Virginia until his acceptance to West Point. He attended the academy with his cousin, Robert Garnett, and both graduated in the class of 1841, Robert 27th and Richard 29th. Robert would also go on to become a Confederate general and had the rather unfortunate distinction of being the first general officer killed in the war at the Battle of Cordix Ford on July 13, 1861. Another thing to note about the Garnett cousins was that Richard might be the only general of the Civil War without a confirmed photograph. There are a couple of photos that are sometimes said to be Richard Garnett, but historians are mostly in agreement that they're actually photos of Robert. After Richard Garnett's graduation, he served in the army at various frontier posts and fought in a few Indian wars, though he didn't fight in the Mexican War. Similar to Pickett, he had an unofficial or common-law marriage with an indigenous woman. In 1855, he married Akatapi Wynn, an Oglala Sioux woman that he had a child with. After he was transferred to the Kansas Territory, they never heard from him again. 
Though his son William or Billy Garnett was aware of his role in the Civil War, Billy Garnett would later go on to serve as an Indian scout for the U.S. Army in the 1870s, and then also worked for the Indian Agency as an interpreter on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Interestingly, he was also present to witness the assassination of Crazy Horse. Billy Garnett died on the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1928. Garnett's last post in the U.S. Army was in California, which he left following Virginia's secession. He received a commission as a major of artillery in the Confederate Army, but by the end of the year he was promoted to Brigadier General in command of the Stonewall Brigade. While leading Jackson's old unit during the Valley Campaign, he ordered the brigade to retreat at the Battle of Kernstown without orders from Jackson, which led to his arrest and ultimately a court-martial for neglect of duty. The charges were dubious at best. Modern historians and even most contemporaries were sympathetic to Garnett. His men were out of ammunition and outflanked. Retreating was a reasonable thing to do, but the fanatical Jackson did not see it that way. In fact, some have alleged that the arrest stemmed from Jackson's jealousy over Garnett's popularity with the soldiers of the brigade, who preferred their new leader to Jackson. Before he was exonerated or convicted, R.E. Lee ordered him released from arrest so he could join the army in time for the Maryland campaign. He was given command of one of Pickett's brigades, which he led in every subsequent campaign. When Jackson died after Chancellorsville, Garnett paid his respects and was asked to serve as a pallbearer at his funeral cortege. Many have since speculated that Garnett went into the Gettysburg campaign with some sort of death wish, or at the very least felt that he needed to clear his name of all doubts of his personal honor. He arrived at Gettysburg riding in the back of an ambulance because he'd been kicked in the leg by a horse. Additionally, he had some sort of fever, both of which should have excluded him from leading his brigade on July 3rd. In fact, Colonel Eppa Hunton, commander of the 8th Virginia in Garnett's brigade and the de facto second-in-command, had led the brigade for much of the past week. Pickett's oldest brigade commander was Brigadier General Lewis Addison Armistead. Armistead, who was 46, was born in North Carolina, but grew up in Virginia where his family had been since the early days of the colony in the 17th century. He seemed destined for some sort of military career. His father and all of his uncles served in the War of 1812, most notably his uncle George Armistead, who commanded Fort McHenry during the Battle of Baltimore. The flag that flew over the fort is the same one that Francis Scott Key would immortalize in his poem, The Star-Spangled Banner. Funny enough, George Armistead would illegally take the flag home with him as a souvenir. Lewis's father, Walker Keith Armistead, was a high-ranking army officer. He was part of Matt and Anthony Wayne's expedition in the 1790s to break up the Shawnee-Miami Confederacy and served at the Battle of Fallen Timbers, only a few miles from where I live today. He was the third man to graduate from the U.S. Military Academy in 1803 and rose to the rank of Colonel or Brevet Brigadier General. He died in 1845. The young Armistead entered West Point in 1833 but struggled academically and left the academy that year. He returned the following year but by 1836 had resigned again, mostly due to poor academic performance. But the allegation that he broke a plate over Jubal Early's head gained popularity during the 1860s. Fortunately, his future military career was largely unaffected, mostly due to the fact that his father was one of the highest-ranking officers in the pre-war army. He received a second lieutenant's commission in 1839 and served on his father's staff during the Seminole War. After his stint in Florida, he served in the infantry at various frontier posts. He was given brevet promotions for gallantry in the Mexican War, like his future corps commander James Longstreet. He too was wounded at the Battle of Chapultepec. And like his future division commander, George Pickett, the years between Mexico and 1861 were filled with tragedy. He was married twice, but both of his wives died, the first from unknown causes and the second from cholera. 
two of his three children died as well. He suffered from health problems and his family's home in Virginia burned down. His last years in the U.S. Army were spent in California, where he participated in the war against the Mojaves. Armistead is probably most well-known for his friendship with Winfield Scott Hancock, made famous by the novel The Killer Angels and its film adaptation Gettysburg. In this fictional portrayal, they're described as almost brothers that developed a close relationship during the pre-war army days on various frontier posts and ended up on opposite sides of the war. Although there is a kernel of truth to the story, it seems as if the relationship was not as strong as pop culture would have us believe. In reality, they were certainly acquainted and were probably friends to some degree. Armistead was a bit older than Hancock, but they served together at both Fort Towson and Washita in the Indian Territory, now Oklahoma. At the latter post, they were only two of six total officers, so undoubtedly they spent a fair amount of time together. They would both go on to serve in the same infantry regiment in the Mexican War, and one of the few pieces of evidence of their friendship came from Henry Heath. Writing after the Civil War, Heath recounted a memory of the Mexican War, quote, Armistead, Hancock, and I were messmates, and never was a mess happier than ours, unquote. In fact, Heath and Hancock were probably closer based on the way Heath described their friendship. It makes sense as they were closer in age, only about a year apart, whereas Armistead was seven years older. Both would bounce around in the years between Mexico and 1861, but they ended up in California. Hancock was stationed at Los Angeles and Armistead in San Diego. Their last days on the West Coast apparently included a farewell get-together with a bunch of fellow army officers. Hancock's wife, Elmira, is the only person who wrote about the event. While others were in attendance, she only mentioned three people by name, Hancock, Armistead, and Albert Sidney Johnston, a future Confederate general. Elmira Hancock wrote, quote, The most crushed of the party was Major Armistead, who with tears, which were contagious, streaming down his face, and hands upon Mr. Hancock's shoulders while looking him steadily in the eye, said, Hancock, goodbye. You can never know what this has cost me, and I hope God will strike me dead if I am ever induced to leave my native soil, should worst come to worst. Unquote. He then gave Winfield his major's uniform, and Elmira a satchel of personal belongings that he wanted her to send to his family in the event of his death. She could keep his prayer book, though. Armistead entered the Confederate Army in September of 1861, and within a couple of weeks was promoted to Colonel of the 57th Virginia Infantry. Without ever having led his regiment in a major battle, he was again promoted to Brigade Command. Following the Maryland Campaign, his brigade was added to Pickett's newly created division. Though he was noted as being personally brave during battle, he was not a particularly talented general and was not well-liked by his soldiers because he had the reputation for being a rather strict disciplinarian. The last of Pickett's generals at Gettysburg was Brigadier General James Lawson Kemper. Kemper turned 40 just after the campaign began. He grew up on a wealthy plantation in Madison County, Virginia, and attended a private school with future Confederate General A.P. Hill. After graduating from Washington College, Kemper studied law and entered that profession until the Mexican War. He and a close friend, Burkett D. Fry, who led another Confederate brigade at Gettysburg, both volunteered for a Virginia regiment and served in Zachary Taylor's army in Mexico. Following the war, he returned to Virginia and resumed his legal career, and also did some real estate speculating. Not long after, he got involved in politics and was a representative in the Virginia House of Delegates for 10 years as a Democrat. During this time, his pro-slavery, pro-states rights views developed. He was also a state militia leader and was instrumental in preparing Virginia for a future conflict. Kemper was pro-secession and quickly joined the Confederate Army, though he kept his position as Speaker of the House of Delegates. 
He was named Colonel of the 7th Virginia Infantry and fought at the First Battle of Bull Run and Jubal Early's Brigade. Later, his regiment was transferred to his old friend A.P. Hill's Brigade, which he assumed command of after Hill's promotion to Division Command. His brigade was added to Pickett's division following the Maryland Campaign. Pickett and his three brigadiers were all of almost identical backgrounds. All were sons of Virginia, slave-owning planters. Three of the four attended West Point, though only Pickett and Garnett graduated. All but Garnett fought in the Mexican War. Every single regiment in the division was from Virginia, and it included soldiers from almost every part of the state, from the Tidewater to the Piedmont all the way to the Shenandoah Valley. With the arrival of Pickett's division, Lee went about preparing a tactical plan for July 3rd. What exactly his process was, we'll never know, because he did not leave as much to go on. Only a few of his staff officers and General A.P. Hill saw him that night, but he mostly spent the evening formulating a plan by himself. In his after-battle report, he wrote only this about the results of the second day and the plan for the third. Quote, After a severe struggle, Longstreet succeeded in getting possession of and holding the desired ground. Ewell also carried some of the strong positions which he assailed, and the result was such as to lead to the belief that he would ultimately be able to dislodge the enemy. The battle ceased at dark. These partial successes determined me to continue the assault the next day. Pickett, with three of his brigades, joined Longstreet the following morning, and our batteries were moved forward to positions gained by him the day before. The general plan of attack was unchanged, excepting that one division and two brigades of Hill's Corps were ordered to support Longstreet. Unquote. Lee's description of what he had in mind for July 3rd was incredibly vague, but he basically intended to follow up with additional attacks against both Union flanks. The ultimate goal would be to drive the ends of the Federal line in on its apex at Cemetery Hill. Unlike Meade, who had a nearly complete view of the Confederate Army, Lee did not have much clue about the strength of the Army of the Potomac. At that point, all seven infantry corps and most of the cavalry corps were near Gettysburg. Two days of heavy fighting had certainly taken a toll in the Federal Army, as the number of able-bodied soldiers was estimated to be only around 58,000. But the situation wasn't much better for the Confederates. Pickett's division, the only completely fresh unit within the army, had somewhere between 5,400 and 5,800 officers and soldiers. At the beginning of the battle, only Early's and Anderson's divisions were smaller. On the other hand, the entire Union Six Corps, which consisted of more than 13,000 soldiers and officers, was almost completely fresh. Similar to the controversy of the Sunrise Attack Plan for July 2nd, critics of General Longstreet would accuse him of disregarding Lee's orders for an early morning attack on the 3rd. But again, most of these critics were people who could not have known Lee's intentions or actions. Nothing was ever written down, which was typical for the Confederate Army. Verbal orders were the norm. In all likelihood, it seems as if Lee, through a courier, told Longstreet to bring up Pickett's division for a renewal of attacks early on the 3rd. Lee never gave specific orders for what he intended for the Army to do the next day, which gave his old warhorse enough leeway to make his own plans for the third day's battle. There are some discrepancies in Longstreet's post-war accounts of what happened between the night of July 2nd and the morning of July 3rd, but I think his post-battle report, which was written later that month, gives us the most unsullied version of events. He recalled, quote, On the following morning, our arrangements were made for renewing the attack by my right, with a view to pass around the hill occupied by the enemy on his left, and to gain it by flank and reverse attack. This would have been a slow process, probably but I think not very difficult, unquote. So Longstreet was once again advocating for his troops to pass around to the south of Big Round Top and then attack the Federal left flank and rear. 
We have no way of knowing whether or not this would have worked, but on its face it seemed like a better tactical plan than Lee's idea of simply attacking in the same place as they'd done on the second. After the war, Longstreet did change certain parts of his original story. Sometimes, this intended operation sounded more like a wide-sweeping turning movement that would force the Yankees to attack them in a defensive position, whereas other accounts sounded closer to what he wrote in his post-battle report. Regardless, the two generals would meet at 4.30am the following morning, and whatever plans they'd come up with were quickly scrapped. Longstreet continued in his report, quote, a few moments after my orders for the execution of this plan were given, the commanding general joined me and ordered a column of attack to be formed of pickets, heaths, and part of Pender's divisions, the assault to be made directly at the enemy's main position, the Cemetery Hill. Unquote. According to Longstreet, Lee made his plan known that he wanted to strike the line at its center and left, with Longstreet's three divisions. He anticipated this and advocated for his own plan. He told Lee that his scouts had reconnoitered the Federal line all night and morning, and his corps should pass around their left flank, and depending on the particular account, either attack them on the flank or wait to be attacked. That gave them the best opportunity for success. But Lee would have none of it. Longstreet alleged that Lee, quote, replied, pointing his fist at Cemetery Hill, The enemy is there, and I'm going to strike him, unquote. Longstreet's fears that Lee would not budge from this frontal assault have been confirmed. I think it's fair to say that R.E. Lee must have considered all of the options the previous night and had come to the conclusion that made the most sense to him. He was not an infallible army commander, but he was also no dummy. Still, it's odd that Lee was so committed to a direct attack. It's no secret that he tended to favor offensive operations and tactics. This type of warfare had mostly served him well. He'd seen his soldiers carry positions and drive off Union defenders time and time again, and in a sense he believed his soldiers to be capable of any feat that was humanly possible. They'd driven the Yankees through town on the first day. They'd come close the day before. They'd wiped out an entire federal corps, and Wright's brigade had climbed the slopes of Cemetery Ridge. Perhaps he truly thought he had the Army of the Potomac on the ropes, and one more punch to the gut would do the job. As Longstreet recalled after the war, quote, General Lee hoped to break through the federal line and drive them off, unquote. Lee heeded Longstreet's advice at least in one respect. He did acknowledge the need to protect their own right flank so Hood's and McClaw's divisions were excluded from the attack. Instead, two divisions of A.P. Hill's Third Corps would support Pickett, Heath's division, now commanded by General Johnston Pettigrew, and Pender's division, now commanded by General James Lane, but soon to be replaced by General Isaac Trimble. As Lee and Longstreet's meeting progressed, they were joined by Generals Hill and Heath, British observer Arthur Fremantle, and an indeterminate number of staff officers. Longstreet asked how many soldiers would constitute the assault column. He claimed that Lee replied that it would be around 15,000 men. How did he arrive at that number? Well, generally speaking, a division of soldiers consisted of 5,000 men or so. So three divisions times 5,000 equals 15,000. In reality, the number was probably lower. Most modern estimates of the size of the attacking force range in the low end of 10,500 to 13,000. The most common number you'll see in most books today puts the number at 12,500. Regardless, even if the 15,000 soldiers were in the attack, it was a number far too low. Longstreet wrote after the war that no less than 30,000 would be required to ensure the success of the attack. This assertion was confirmed by Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Fremantle, who recorded that the 1st Corps commander told him this on July 4th. But 30,000 soldiers were not available to make the attack. 
The army was still spread out in a line too thin to concentrate enough against one particular point. Had they had time to truly reorganize and maneuver into a better position, it's possible that Lee and Longstreet could have more carefully selected units for the assault, but time was running out. Every moment that the assault was delayed gave the Federals more opportunities to reinforce their own defensive line. Longstreet made one last plea to his superior, in the hopes that he could alter the course of the attack. He wrote after the war that he said to him, quote, General, I have been a soldier all my life. I have been with soldiers engaged in fights by couples, by squads, companies, regiments, divisions, and armies, and should know, as well as anyone, what soldiers can do. It is my opinion that no 15,000 men ever arrayed for battle can take that position. His finger pointed at Cemetery Hill, unquote. He would go on to say, quote, General Lee, in reply to this, ordered me to prepare Pickett's division for the attack, unquote. In another account, he said that he considered tacking on something about not wanting to sacrifice the lives of his soldiers, but since that Lee was growing impatient and said nothing more. And with that, preparations for the assault began in earnest. The infantry marched into positions where they would have some cover before beginning the long march. Preceding the charge would be a grand artillery bombardment that was intended to disable the majority of the federal guns in Cemetery Ridge and Hill, and hopefully kill or wound a large number of Union infantrymen. Nine brigades of Pickett's, Heath's, and Pender's divisions would march across the valley between Seminary and Cemetery Ridges. The artillery would move up with the infantry and provide close-range support, something rarely seen in the Civil War. The rebel infantry would break the line and drive off the Yankee defenders. This is about where I want to end this episode, because we're at around an hour already, and there's still a lot left to talk about before we even get to the assault. But I do want to comment on one thing. Why did Lee make the decision to attack the Union line on Cemetery Ridge? What did he hope to gain? Was this a well-calculated move that he had full confidence of its success, or was it some sort of desperate gamble? Unfortunately, we don't really know what Lee was thinking. He didn't really write those things down. But just to speculate, I think that Lee did believe the attack could and would be successful. The one thing I do come back to is, what did he think he was going up against? The answer is unclear, but I don't think Lee knew that he was facing the entire Army of the Potomac. But I'm not really sure if that even matters. Almost a year before to the day was the Battle of Malvern Hill, the end of the Seven Days Battles, in which Lee ordered his artillery to barrage federal batteries before sending his infantry in a massive assault against Union defensive positions. That battle was widely seen as Lee's biggest blunder as an army commander, even though the failed assault on Malvern Hill had largely been the result of poor communication and tactical decisions made by his subordinates. Still, one couldn't help see the close of the Seven Days Battles as an ominous precursor for what was to come at Gettysburg. Coincidentally, one of the primary brigades in the assault on Malvern Hill had been General Louis Armistead's, whose brigade waited behind the crest of Seminary Ridge in the late morning and early afternoon of July 3rd. Back to my original questions, I think Lee truly believed in the abilities of his soldiers and officers, and maybe there was an element of desperation in his decision making. He knew that the situation on other fronts was growing worse, and wasn't likely to get any better. The success of his army gave the Confederacy its only real chance at winning the war, and they didn't come to Pennsylvania just to steal supplies and terrorize civilians. The partial successes of the past two days weren't enough. I think former NFL and current Arizona State football coach Herm Edwards put it best. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. You don't play to just play it. Lee wasn't going to vacate the field without giving it one last try. 
And that's where I'm going to leave off for today, folks. Next episode is going to be a big one. I think regardless of how long it ends up being, I'm going to jam everything that has to do with the rest of July 3rd into one mega episode. It'll include more of the planning involved in the Confederate attack, the early morning renewal of the battle on Culp's Hill, the cavalry battles on the periphery, how both armies felt leading up to the Confederate infantry assault, and last, but certainly not least, the assault that will go down in history as Pickett's Charge. Thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, History. Just before the